0: All right, in her new book, Unashamed, Heather Nelson, a gospel centered counselor trained by Ed Welch, those of you who are familiar with that name, Center for Biblical Counseling, tells the story of Elise. Elise gave her heart, soul, and schedule to full time ministry, to be on a staff of a, a large church ministry staff. As is pretty typical of those in full time ministry, though the boundaries between time off and ministry often get blurred. It's just a, it's a hazard of ministry. It's just the way it goes. It happens to everybody, and you got to learn to navigate those waters. Some of us do it better than others. Some of us still haven't figured it out. But you combine that with Elisa's need to be needed, and she started forgetting her own need of rest. And so five years into ministry, she started breaking down. She wasn't able to sleep at night. She started losing her appetite. She was having regular daily stress migraine headaches. She told this to her doctor, and her physician says, hey, you need some time off, and suggested that she do so, so she did. And so for a full month, she couldn't get out of bed. She slept all day, and she watched TV all day. After a month, she marched into an all-staff, church-wide staff meeting and did the absolute unexpected. I quit. I can't do this anymore. I'm done with ministry. The experts call this burnout. In 2010, on August 1st, the New York Times reported, quote, members of the clergy now suffer from obesity, hypertension, and depression at rates higher than most Americans. In fact, the last decade their use of antidepressants has risen while their life expectancy has fallen. Many would change jobs if they could. There's some new research that's just come out recently, y'all, that is uh, sent seminaries, church leaders, and churches across all denominational traditions into a panic. In fact, at our own North Texas Presbytery, where I'm a part of, this church is a part of, uh, someone came and spoke to us specifically about these frightening facts and findings that are coming out across the church landscape. Here's the first. 23% of all pastors have been fired or forced to resign at least once due to underhanded power plays by at least just a handful of people, small group of people. 25% of pastors don't know where to turn when they have a family or personal conflict or issue. 25% of pastors' wives see their husband's work schedule as a source of conflict. 33% of pastors felt burned out in the first five years of ministry. 33% of pastors said being in ministry, now get this, being in ministry, just being in ministry is an outright hazard to their family. 40% of pastors, 47% of their spouses are right now in burnout, suffering burnout. 45% of pastors' wives say the greatest danger to them, to their family, is physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual burnout. Forty-five percent of pastors say they have experienced depression and burnout at such a level that they had to leave the ministry to try to recoup. Fifty percent of pastors right now feel unable to meet the needs of their job. Forty-two percent of pastors' wives believe that being in pastoral ministry is a hazard, is hazardous to their family's well-being and health. Fifty-six percent of pastors' wives say they have no close friends. 57% 57% of pastors would leave the pastorate if they had another job, if they, had another, if they could do anything, if they could move anywhere, they'd leave. Now, the next branch of disturbing uh, statistics is even more elevated. 70% of pastors say they have no close friends. 75% report right now severe stress, so severe that it's causing anguish, anxiety, bewilderment, anger, fear, and depression and alienation in their life. 80% say they have insufficient time with their spouse. 80% say that their ministry affects, the ministry affects their families negatively. Now, it was 52%, right? 52% said it's an outright hazard. So now that's an outright hazard, but then you take 80% of all pastors in the United States say it affects their family negatively to be in pastoral ministry. 90% of pastors feel unqualified, ill-equipped to do their job. 90% work more than 50 hours a week. That's, that's easy. 94% feel under pressure to have a perfect family. I blew that the first week. <laughs> Lastly, 1,500 pastors, 1,500 pastors, leave the ministry, leave the church. What? Each year? No each month. That means 275,000 people are without a pastor each month and it accumulates. In a year, 3 million people are without a pastor or a shepherd to lead them. What would it be like, like if I just quit today? I mean, what would happen? How would it affect things? What would be the ripple effects? So imagine three million folks across traditions and denominational lines Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist, Bible Church, Pentecostal across lines. Why did they leave, 1,500? Uh, burnout, conflict with others, moral failure. Okay, so one comment, my first comment I want to say about these statistics is they point to the incredible, very real need for us to start a center of clear gospel communication so that we can train pastors and we can train those that are going into ministry and those that are ministry leaders in the church on how to experience gospel renewal In other words, Jesus and His salvation in the heartbeat of what they do every week in preparing and proclaiming the sermon. In other words, not getting something done and the pressure to get something done, but in the actual primary call of them while they are preparing, while they are preaching, they grow in experiencing Jesus and His salvation on the spot. On the spot. Like right now while I preach, I experience Jesus and salvation on the spot. Also for pastors and those going into ministry, those considering ministry, to learn how to preach for gospel renewal wherever they're at, to actually see that the aim of preaching is for you to experience Jesus and his salvation on the spot. Like right now. And to have that impact your life, have that impact your home, have that impact your workplace, have that impact communities, have that impact the surrounding culture. Can you imagine? Second thing I want to say about these statistics is what about you? Because pastors are the super saints, right? If this is what's happening to the super saints, If life is hard and and life is messy, what would your statistics look like? What are the, um, the relational stressors going on in your marriage, in your parenting, in your relationships? What are the expectations and the demands and the hazards of your vocation, your calling? What are the What are the standards that you put on yourself or that others put on you and being a mom and being a good father and being a good husband and being a good wife and being a good employer and being a good employee and being a good student and being a good professor and being a good... Yeah. Here's the last thing. The last thing that's going to happen is the passage is going to say something to us. And here's what the passage says about these statistics. Do not underestimate, do not underestimate the power of the struggle going on in you right now for righteousness. Please stand for the hearing of God's word.
1: This morning's scripture reading comes from Romans 9, verse 30 uh, through 10, verse 7. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. This is the word of the Lord
0: alright you All right, y'all, before you take your seat, how many of you really want to know what that means? Ascending into heaven, descending into, I do. Let's see if we can figure that out today. Please be seated. So, Lord, we, um, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit. We ask that you would shine on the page. We ask that uh, as your words are unfolded, they would give light, and it would happen now. And we are so grateful that your words, your You're speaking as you're acting, and that the primary speech act in all the Bible is Jesus, and so we we ask Jesus that you would show up, and in doing so, produce change on the spot, and we ask this in your name, amen. All right, y'all, I still have whatever's going on, so I keep the cords rolling. All right. We just finished the Mac truck of uh, Romans nine, didn't we? Thank the Lord we finished that Mac truck. Uh, we saw in, in chapter nine that God is the author of our salvation, right? We looked at electing grace. Uh, now in the end of chapter nine and throughout chapter 10, Paul is gonna zero in on the other asymmetric idea. God is the author of our salvation. Remember we saw that we are the authors of our condemnation, two asymmetric ideas that are meant to be kept together Separate, distinct, but not mixed or separated. Uh, So now he's going to zero in on what does the authorship of our unbelief, our sin, our evil, our condemnation look like? In other words, he's going to ask the question is going to be this, what does the core character of a fallen condition look like? What's the essence? If we take the fallen condition again, just like we did in the last week, and we are to cut it open and dissect it and reach in and pull out the heart of it, what would it be? Uh, What drives our lives? What drives your life from cradle to grave? Consciously, certainly, but mostly even subconsciously. So much so that, that it's affecting your thinking and your feeling and the way you perceive reality, the way you behave, the way you relate, how you construct an identity, how you determine what is success and what's happiness and what's flourishing. All of that is wrapped up in this passage. Whatever it is, though, I mean, look at this passage. Whatever it is, it's a deep struggle. I mean, look at the verbal action in this passage. You see it in the first three verses. Pursue is used three times. Then you have attain in verse 30, reaching in 31, stumble in 32, zeal in 10.1, seeking to establish in 10.3, submit, 10.3, doing or does, right, in 10.5, ascend, descend, Six, seven, whatever's going on in this passage, you know what's going on? This passage is burned out, scorched earth. Why is this passage burned out? Why are those in this passage, particularly the Israelites, particularly the religious, particularly those that believe in God, particularly those that are serious about following God, particularly those that believe the Bible is the word of God, particularly those that gather regularly in what could be called a church, particularly them, why are they burned out? What does the deep struggle in this passage look like? That's what we're going to look like. Look at verse 30 and 31. What shall we say then? In other words, Paul's saying, what shall we say to what I just said in 19 through 23? In other words, we are the authors of our condemnation. What shall we say to that, he's saying? So here comes the big idea for today. Here's his point, Paul's apostolic point. Here it is that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Did you notice that some are not in a struggle here? Verse 30, Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. No one's struggling there in that group. This is stunning. The ones that least wanted to be righteous end up righteous. the ones that Paul talked about in Romans 1 as being so selfish, so self-absorbed, and so looking for pleasure end up being the very ones who end up being righteous. But some are, some are not in the struggle, but some are in a struggle. Do you see that? Verse 31, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Pursuing what you cannot attain, that's the definition of a struggle. Pursuing what you cannot attain is the very heart of burnout. Sisyphus. Remember Sisyphus? Uh, he uh, was scorned by the gods. He had this deep hatred for death and this deep passion for life. And what that won him was the unspeakable penalty of exerting his whole life, exerting his whole being toward accomplishing absolutely nothing. Remember the story? It takes the rock and it takes every molecule of muscle in him. It takes every molecule of exertion in him to push this rock up a mountain, and just before he gets to the summit, just before he gets to accomplishment, just before he gets to meaning and purpose, it rolls back down, and he trudges back down the mountain and pushes it up, and it rolls down again and again and again and again for all eternity. Some call that hell. The ones who most wanted to be righteous who exert every molecule of effort to push the rock of their righteousness up the mountain never summit. They never attain righteousness. They never achieve righteousness. They never reach righteousness. In fact, they end up unrighteous according to this passage. They end up dead in their sins. This is Paul's point. His point is this the struggle for righteousness, or a righteousness achieved, or a law of righteousness, according to this text, to use Paul's language, a law of righteousness never summits. It never reaches righteousness. So, for the rest of our time, this is what we're going to do. Here's the, here's the plan. We're going to look at why. Why is that? Why do we play syphilis? Why do we do that with our righteousness? Why are we struggling and exerting to push the rock of our righteousness to a summit that we never reach? And then we're going to end by looking at Paul's prayer for us. Paul's prayer for the immediate folks in the text and Paul's prayer that was given 2,000 years ago that has actually now reached into this world's realm and reached you and renews you. That's how powerful his prayers have been. All right, so why do we play syphysis with righteousness? Look at verse 32. Don't you love this? I love how the scripture, you know, you got to like propositions. When you're in narrative, I love stories. Everybody loves stories, but sometimes you just want to be told something. Can you please just tell me? Can you please be clear about it? Well, here we go. Um, In verse 32, why? Why do they do this? Why does this happen? So he's telling us, right? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. What? Notice that here and throughout Romans and throughout this passage, righteousness is not optional. It must be pursued. Do you see that? Righteousness is needed. It must be pursued. We need righteousness. It must be pursued. Why? Because the first man and the first woman were righteous. They were whole, complete. And the Bible describes that world. Paradise. The Hebrew word for it is shalom. When you are righteous, when you are complete, when you are perfect, when you are praiseworthy, when you are acceptable, when you are worthy, it unleashes peace, paradise. The original man and woman had no spot no blemish, no flaw, no imperfection, no fault, no unrighteousness. Therefore, there was no, there was no condemnations, there were no accusations, psychologically, relationally, vocationally, in the way they interacted with the world. There was no accusations, no trials, no fear of punishment, no no fear of rejection, no shame. They were clothed. There was no nakedness and no shame with God, with themselves, with other people, with the world and with their vocations. Do you know what this means? Our souls were meant to run on righteousness. You were designed, you were made to run. Your soul was made to fire on all pistons of righteousness. Praise from God, God's acceptance. God's rejoicing over you. The approval and the acceptability of God. C.S. Lewis said he saw the secret of the soul when he watched a child who was playing alone in a room, and he was sitting in the room, so it was probably, I don't, I don't know, a family member or somebody. But he watched when the father came in, and the father praised the child. And the child came alive. The child became himself. Our souls were meant to run on righteousness, the praise of the Father. I don't know when this happened. I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, maybe fewer years ago. But um, one of the children, not giving away who it was, um, I got mad at them. And they came up to me and they said, having your dad mad at you is the worst thing in all the world, Dad. There's nothing Our souls were meant to run on righteousness, the praise of a father, the love and acceptance of a father. This is why the New Yorker ran a cartoon of a woman sitting in the therapist's office and the caption read, first I did things for my parents' approval, then I did things for my parents' disapproval, now I don't know why I do things. Our souls were made to run On the righteousness, on righteousness, the praise of the Father. Why do we play syphysis with righteousness? First, we need righteousness. We must have it. Righteousness is not optional. Our souls were made to run on it. It's not an option. We have to have it. Second, look at verse 32 again. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. That's what we just looked at. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Why do we play syphysis with righteousness? Because we want to. Because we want to work for it. Because we want to roll our own rock of righteousness up the mountain, have its summit, and say, Praise me. I'm now acceptable. I'm now worthy of love. Do you know that the moment, you know there's times, and if if you haven't experienced this when you're married, come see me and I'll check your pulse. But for the rest of us, you've experienced this too. Have you ever, you know that moment when you feel this deep, deep need to be understood? (laughs) Or this deep, deep need to defend yourself? You know, or you're in something and someone starts talking to you about something you just had and they got it all wrong. Absolutely got it wrong. The narration of the events, that's not what happened. That's not what you said. That's not what you meant. That's not, and everything in you, you have this need to defend yourself. This need to be understood. You know that the moment that happens, you are fighting. I am fighting for righteousness. We are defending our righteousness. We are syphysists. Pushing the rock of our righteousness to the summit. Did you know that drivenness, I'm a very, very driven person. So I'm a, I'm a recovering, um, being renewed by the gospel in that area. Did you know that drivenness, perfectionism, or it's cousins, drivenness, drivenness sounds so good. It's always, everybody can say, hey man, I, yeah, my problems, I'm just really Driven. So let's go to the cousins that aren't necessarily as attractive, like perfectionism, the need to control. How about OCD? How about anxiety? Ooh, yeah. How about uh, needing people to need you? Or how about just completely withdrawing from people in life? All these cousins. You know what this is? You know what the root of it all is? We're trying to manage our Righteousness. We're trying, as verse 3 of 10 says, we're trying to establish a righteousness of our own. We are syphysis. We're pushing our righteousness up the mountain. Right? Why do we play syphysis with righteousness? One, we need to. We need righteousness. We must have it. We must pursue it because our soul was meant to run on it. Second, Instead of running on that righteousness, we seek to run on self-righteousness. We want to work for it. We want to earn it. We want to achieve it. We want an achieved righteousness, not a received one. Look at Paul's prayer in 10.1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. <laughs> Don't miss this. This is so stunning, Right? This is after the chapter, after he just talked about God is the author of our salvation. He just talked about electing grace. He just talked about something that that most of the times when you talk about, the first thing that people say is, oh, so we do nothing, right? Or, oh, so like that view of sanctification. Oh, so we don't do anything. We have no responsibility. That's the initial thing that we all say the heart says, right? And his initial prayer, after all this talk of election, all this talk of self-righteousness, he isn't paralyzed by an action. He's energized to pray. Do you see that? Well, why pray if God does everything? Why pray if God is sovereign? Why pray if it's all grace? Why try to do anything if it's all grace? If God's the one that's at work in us, well, what, so we, what do we do? God is the author of our salvation. We are the authors of our condemnation. Asymmetric lines. And what that did for Paul is it didn't paralyze him it energized him to pray boldly, oh God, save them. (laughs) Oh God, rescue authors of unbelief and sin and condemnation. Rescue syphysis pushing the rock of their righteousness to the summit. Oh God, reach you and me. Uh, Rosemary Miller, I told you there's some books that I continue to read. Hers is one of them, From Fear to Freedom. She, she is the wife of, um, of a man named Jack Miller who was instrumental, the first one probably in a long, long time to start gospel renewal in the Presbyterian church that now Keller comes behind, that is now impacting the whole world. Um, but she realized that her daughter, her lost daughter, who ran off with a drug dealer, the kind of drug dealer that owns islands. Uh, this is a pastor's daughter. And she realized that it produced in her, her lost daughter, this deep despair. And it did so for years. It was eating her up. She had this deep sense of hopelessness when she thought of her daughter. She would think of things. She kept thinking and feeling and obsessing over the fact, she's lost. She's lost. She's lost forever. And then she realized, her and her husband realized that's what was happening to them and the way they related to her daughter. And she said, quote, it was a weighty thing to consider. And then she said, had we in our praying for Barb been ignoring the key of grace that can unlock the heaviest door and let in the light of God's love, so we repented that night. For what, you say? What what would they need to repent for? Here's what they said for letting Barbara's rebellion and rebellion and condition letting her rebellion condition us to think that her future was set in hopelessness and despair that God won't work from that day forward they began to pray with new confidence she says we trusted that Christ was pursuing her now get this we trusted she's saying quote we trusted that Christ was pursuing our daughter how how through our prayers Oh, it's my heart's desire, and I pray to God that he may save them. That's what grace does, because only the grace of God um, can rescue us and can reach syphysis and reach folks addicted to their own righteousness, running on the octane of self-righteousness. So why is he praying like this? Look at verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You see that? This is beautiful. Christ, he's saying Christ means the end of the struggle for righteousness. That's what that passage is saying. Christ means the end of the struggle for righteousness. The struggle for righteousness is over because Jesus gives you his own. And now we're back. peace and shalom we're back to being complete and whole we're back to being acceptable and perfect and pure we're back to being blameless and without spot and wrinkle and fault and imperfection and unrighteousness we're back to there being no condemnation and no fear of rejection and no shame and no exclusion we're back to paradise and we're back to peace we're back to running on the octane that our souls were meant to run on, righteousness, the praise of the Father. Now, faith gets this. Do you see that? That's the point. That's what's going on in those weird verses, y'all. Those weird verses in 5 through 7 is basically saying, look what he's saying. Faith says this. Faith does not say this, right? So faith gets this. Faith says, I do not need to do anything to be righteous. I do not need to do anything to be righteous. Do you see that? That's what faith is saying. Look at verse 30, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. They didn't, they didn't do anything but be unrighteous. And they attained righteousness. All you and I bring to the table of our salvation is our unrighteousness. Maybe one other thing, resistance. Jesus brings righteousness. Your righteousness, the praise of the Father. I do not need to perform. I do not need to perfect. I do not need to prove. I do not need to work. I do not need to labor. I do not need to earn. I do not need to scale to heaven. That's what's happening in that verse. Do you see that? Ascend. Ascend. Why do I not need to ascend? Why do I not need to be syphysis? Why do I not need to push this rock up? Because Jesus has already descended. He's already come down in human history, and he already is the righteousness of God in human form. Look at the next phrase, right? Descend into the abyss, what is that? That means I do not need to deal with my sins on my own. You do not need to deal with your sins on your own. You do not need to go into the abyss to pay the penalty for your sins. You do not need to feel bad. You don't need to beat yourself with guilt. You do not need to have the time out of a, an hour or two hours where you hate yourself, loathe yourself, or let someone else who's really, really good at it condemn you. You know, someone in your life, okay, I deserve it. Just bring it on, right? You don't need to feel like a victim. You don't need to. Experience shame. You don't need to be under that kind of life anymore because Jesus descended into the abyss and took it all. He dealt with it. Faith understands that it does nothing. Faith is not about doing. Faith is about trusting what's already been done. The only thing that keeps you and me from um, breaking off our treadmill, pushing of the rock of our righteousness up the summit, the only thing that breaks us from being synthesis, you know what it is? We have to begin to see that our self righteousness is sin. And we have to begin to see that that self righteousness is burning our souls out. You can't run on that. Your soul wasn't meant to run on that. You will crash and burn. And when you begin to realize that, you will no longer stumble over the rock of righteousness. You will stand on it. You will stand on someone else's righteousness. And you will live your marriage there. You will live out your communication there. You will have those situations where you need to be understood and you need to defend your righteousness. And when you stand on his righteousness, you say, I don't need to defend my righteousness. I don't have to defend myself. Okay, they misunderstood me. They think I'm a jerk. Oh, well, it's not the last one person that's going to think that way, right? Or that is what I really did. They can't believe that about me. Or Basically, you can say, yeah, I did do that. It's, I did. I was a jerk. Sorry. Forgive me. Because you're standing on someone else's righteousness. The rock. All right, I said that um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, those of you who are familiar with him, that he uh, preached through Romans. Do you all know it took him 13 years to do it? No, this is, it gets better. It gets better. He didn't do it on Sunday mornings. He did it on Friday nights. He wasn't preaching primarily to church people. He wanted to target unchurched people, and they packed. The streets of London were barren on Friday night because they were all in chapel to hear Martin Lloyd-Jones preach Romans, preach good news, not good advice. He's actually the one that coins that phrase. This is what he says. The man who has faith is the man who is no longer looking at himself. The man who has faith is no longer looking to himself. The man who has faith is no longer looking at anything he once was.